Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Rush to reopen. Most of the U.S. takes steps towards reopening as the economic hardships grow. Each unemployed person is a person whose life is now in turmoil. But without more steps to combat the virus still claiming thousands of American lives each day, will reopening work? White House Senior Advisor Kevin Hassett and Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker are next. And race for a cure. Researchers rush to discover a COVID vaccine which could be the key to ending the crisis. If we had a vaccine, that would be very helpful. When can Americans expect a breakthrough? Regeneron Pharmaceutical CEO Dr. Leonard Schleifer coming up. Plus, devastating tape. Two Georgia men arrested for murder months after a deadly shooting. Why did justice take so long for Ahmad Arbery? Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms is here. Hello, I'm Jake Tapper in Washington, where the state of our union is confused. This morning, there are more than 1.3 million cases of coronavirus in the U.S. and more than 78,000 Americans dead. The grim metrics come as states across the country are beginning to loosen their restrictions, and President Trump is urging Americans to start resuming normal life. But the administration, to be frank, cannot even get control of this pandemic within the White House. Late Saturday, we learned three top members of the White House Coronavirus Task Force, Dr. Redfield, who heads the CDC, Dr. Hahn, who heads the FDA, and Dr. Fauci, will now go into some form of quarantine after exposure to a White House staffer who tested positive. There are now two confirmed cases of COVID-19 among White House staff members. And while we wish them a speedy recovery, it is worth pointing out that the White House benefits from surveillance testing and contact tracing, working hard to contain the spread at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue to keep those two aides from spreading the virus to, say, President Trump. And yet, President Trump is refusing to heed the warnings of those on his task force calling for him to mobilize an aggressive testing program so that the public, too, is able to benefit from surveillance testing and contact tracing. So, for instance, you are safer at work or church and your kids are better protected at school or at camp this summer. The lack of widespread organized testing is making it especially hard for Americans and businesses to feel safe as we all begin to reopen. And that's an issue that could have long lasting economic consequences as the nation is already facing the highest unemployment rate since the Great Depression, with news on Friday that more than 20 million jobs were lost in the month of April. I want to get straight to straight to White House Senior Advisor Kevin Hassett to talk about the economic recovery. Uh, Kevin, but I have to start. I have to ask you, given these two new cases reported in, in the White House and key task force doctors self-quarantining, do you regularly wear a mask when you're at the White House? And are you concerned about your health and safety going to work at the White House? Mm-hmm. 
you know, really, Jake, as you know, that that back in March, I, I was still a CNN employee and, and you know, didn't expect to go back into the White House, but there was an emergency. They called me back in and I built a giant data operation to help everybody track the ventilators and things like that. And I knew when I was going back in that I would be taking risks that, that you know, I'd be safer sitting at home, home at my house than going into a West Wing that even with all the testing of the world and the best uh, medical team on earth, is a relatively cramped place uh, that we set up a big data operation in the basement when I got there and we were interacting constantly with people who are going to and from FEMA right at the beginning when we were there. There were some uh, people who caught COVID at FEMA. So we've all been exposing ourselves to risks, you know, under the best guidance we could possibly have to keep us safe. But we're willing to take that chance because we love our country. And, and I think that, you know, there are things that have to happen in that West Wing, even if the building is a little bit old and underventilated and so on. And so, yes, I absolutely have a mask in my pocket. I could uh, wave it at you right now. And I practice social distancing. I uh, wear a mask when I feel it's appropriate. And, and so on. I mean, there, you know, the, the mask issue is, is a significant one. Uh, but recall that that when to get in with the president, that you have to test uh, negative. Uh, and there's, according to what the doctors tell me, not a lot of evidence that you uh, can pass the virus. That you have enough viral load to pass it if you uh, test negative. And, and so I think that it's sound medical judgment that is urging people to, to be that way. Uh, and it's not my judgment, <laughs> but that's what I've been told. So the White House and White House employees benefit from surveillance testing, which is nonstop testing of individuals just to make sure you haven't contracted it. And contact tracing, for instance, those doctors, Fauci, Redfield, Han, uh, all now in some form of quarantine because they came in touch, came in contact with a White House staffer who tested positive. Nationwide, we are not seeing the same kind of aggressive surveillance testing and, and contact tracing uh, that we're seeing in, in the White House. Why not? Why not implement a nationwide aggressive testing and contact tracing system? What's the downside? No, there is no downside. In fact, we should use every single test that we can generate. And that's something that we're working overtime on ramping up uh, testing. Uh, you know, and we, we tested about 300,000 people, I think, on Thursday. And uh, there's some new tests that are being approved. And you're exactly right that the objective is to get as much testing as possible. But the really you know, sad story about my dear colleague in the West Wing is that even with that testing, things can slip through. And, and so it's a very scary time for everybody. We've got uh, you know, moving in on 80,000 dead. Uh, and we've got more than 30 million uh, getting unemployment insurance benefits. And it's a very, very stressful time for all Americans. And as we, like most every other country on earth, start to get our economy going again, it's going to be a very difficult emotional time for everybody, just like it is for the folks in the West Wing this weekend. I want to turn to the economy, but just to just to put a, a, a period on this, um, the, the point that governors and others that I speak with that they make all the time and, and health officials in the administration is they need the president to invoke the Defense Production Act so that this widespread testing, surveillance testing, contact tracing can happen because they don't have the power uh, to force companies to get the testing, the swabs, the reagents, the labs, the lab equipment all up to speed. So. If you could convey that to President Trump, I think that's something that governors tell me all the time they need. But let's turn to the economy. That's why you're here. Millions right. of Americans. Oh, just are out just of one work. thing on President that, Jake. Trump. Just, just okay. Yeah. 
I was just going to throw that that we're talking to governors all the time. I mean, that we've got a call just about every week. I myself am taking personal calls with the governor. I met with Governor Cuomo just a couple of weeks ago. So we are absolutely, as you suggested, listening carefully to governors to find out what's going on on the ground. Okay. The invoking the Defense Production Act is, is what I keep hearing from people in the administration and out. But let's move on to the economy. Right. President Trump um, uh, talked about uh, all these jobs being lost. He said that those jobs will be back, quote, very soon. Uh, Treasury Secretary Mnuchin told me two weeks ago it will be months, not years, until the economy is back to the way it was. The chief economist at Moody's uh, told Politico that it will take until uh, mid-decade before the economy is back to full employment. How long do you think it will take to bring these jobs back? As you, I don't need to tell you, there is a real uh, dire need and people are, are really hurting out there. Right. Well, well, I think that, let, you know, let's put the sort of factors on the table. This is the biggest negative shock to an economy that we've ever, ever seen in our lifetimes. Uh, and it hit an economy that in January was about the strongest economy we'd ever seen. And so when you got two giant forces like that uh, colliding, then any economist who tells you they know exactly what's going to happen, you know, is, is feeding you a line. Uh, the, the fact, though, is that with all of the aggressive bipartisan action to toss maybe as much as $9 trillion at this sort of bridge to the other side, uh, that we see things like in the jobs report on Friday, almost everybody who uh, declared themselves unemployed said they expect to go back to work in the next six months. And so there's a lot of hope out there that we've done enough to make it so that when we get to the other side, we can get going again and, and have a transition back to a great economy. And the Congressional Budget Office is a very nonpartisan place. You know, they say that we're going to have a very strong second half of the year. I'd say their numbers are probably a little bit above mine, but right about where the president is right now. A working paper from experts at the University of Chicago estimates that 42 percent uh, of the job losses uh, will be permanent. Um, is You don't agree with that assessment? Mm -hmm. I think it, you know, we're at that point just with, with the COVID, right, right from the beginning, the models are moving all over the place and we get another week's data and then we really change what we think about things. And I think the same is going to be true, sadly, for the economy. Uh, I know, you know, Steve Davis and his co-authors at the University of Chicago that put that paper out, I, I studied it carefully. And I think that, again, we're, we're in an unknown period where the biggest shock ever hit the strongest economy ever. And then really smart policies like the, the small business loans, the Main Street lending facility were put in place incredibly rapidly to help build a bridge to the other side. And I, it's just, it's a very, very unusual mix. There's no precedent for it. But to put it in perspective, Jake, if you go back and look when President Obama came in during the Great Recession and the financial crisis, they had an incredibly uh, difficult lift. Uh, and in the middle of December, they started to meet about having a stimulus package, but it didn't pass until mid-February. Uh, you know, this Congress and this president got together in just about a week and did a phase three deal. And it's really like a historic accomplishment. And I think that while there's still a lot of partisan sniping on TV all the time, the fact that people care enough about the country to put that aside and pass things with unanimous consent in this emergency, well, frankly, that's, that's what's great about America. And that's the kind of thing that should give Americans hope that the CBO forecast is actually a reasonable call at what might happen in the second half of the year. So you and other Republicans have signaled that there might not be another stimulus bill. Um, I was uh, texting with a bunch of governors. Uh, Governor uh, Mike DeWine, an Ohio Republican, uh, told me that his state really needs uh, more money uh, for the state and for local governments. He's already cut 
uh, education by almost 4%, which he called a big hit. He says he's going to need to use um, up almost all of the rainy day funding in Ohio. He says local governments are going to start needing to lay off police officers, firefighters. This is a Republican governor. And DeWine emphasizes he doesn't want this money for pensions. He doesn't want this money to get the financial house of Ohio in order. This is for dire needs like education. Can he count on the Trump administration to get him the money that Ohio needs? Can the other governors count on it? Right. Well, well, where we are right now in the White House uh, is that, you know, we've got a bunch of economies around the country and really, frankly, around the world starting to turn the lights back on. We're watching what happens both to economic activity and, frankly, to the path of the disease, the disease as that happens. And so that we expect that very quickly we'll have a picture about you know, how quickly we, we can recover, whether we might have to slow the recovery back down because the disease is spreading and so on. And I think that it's just premature, given that the $9 trillion of aid that passed in the last three phases, given that that is still out there and there's still a bunch of it that's going to be delivered over the next month, we think that we have a little moment, the luxury of a moment, to learn about what's going on so that the next step that we take can be prudent. Uh, Secretary Mnuchin made efforts so that the monies we've already passed to the state uh, can be used for first responders. I think that was an important bit of help that the governors were grateful for. And of course, uh, if we go to a phase four deal, I think that you know President Trump has signaled that while he doesn't want to bail out the states, he's willing to help uh, cover some of the unexpected COVID expenses that might have come their way. And so, you know, I think right now the key is to watch the data and to make sure that the next move is as smart as the previous three. Kevin, how how high do you think unemployment is going to get this year? You know, I I think that just looking at the flow of initial claims, that it looks like we're probably going to get close to 20% in the next report, depending on whether the virus has really abated by that point and economies are really getting going again, uh, then it could start to head down from there. But I would guess sort of middle of the summer is when we're going to start to go into the transition phase. Uh, and then uh, I expect that by the second half of the year, the CBO forecast is you know, what we hope will be right, uh, which will be that you'll have uh, very strong growth in the third and fourth quarters. Before we go, as a matter since of some fact, of your just to, colleagues... To add a little to that, okay. Go ahead. Oh, could I add a little? I know remotes, the, the gag. Yeah, to add a little bit about that is you remember that we basically stopped uh, the greatest economy on earth to save lives. And I think that we're very glad. We've saved lots of lives. We're very glad that we've done that. Now we're gradually turning the economy back on. If you go from a stopped economy to an economy that's turning back on, then it kind of necessarily needs to mm-hmm. be trajecting up, right? And, and, and so, so it's not you know, a mystery why the Congressional Budget Office expects the second half of the year to be stronger. Uh, before we go, since some of your colleagues have tested positive for, for COVID-19, I want to ask you about your health. Uh, have you had any symptoms? Have you been, I guess you said that you were, you were tested yesterday. Um, is that right? Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Uh, you know, the, the way it works is that you can test negative even though you've been exposed to the virus, and then you need to wait a few days to make sure that it's not going to take off uh, on you. And, you know, knock on wood, I've, I've tested negative the last two days. I think that we'll feel, uh, and I'm staying very, very distant from folks, which is why I'm here in this remote van and we've taken extra precautions to keep the people who are, you know, hooked up the camera safe. But, but basically, uh, you know, I think it's gonna be a, a few days of watch and wait and make sure 
and and um, I'm, I'm expecting to be tested again in the next couple of days, and then at that point, we'll be sure that that or highly confident that it didn't come. I didn't catch it from my colleague. I was not in close contact with her, and my heart really really goes out to Katie right now because I know how stressful it must be, just like it is for so many Americans around the country. Yeah, our hearts go out to her and, and uh, the Navy officer as well who tested positive at the White House. Uh, stay right. healthy, uh, Kevin. Thanks and so much for joining service us. And the Yeah, I'll give it a shot. Thanks. That's right. Governors are outlining detailed plans to open their states, but could normal life still be years, ag- years away? The governor of Illinois, J.B. Pritzker, will join me. Plus, one company says its coronavirus treatment could be ready by fall. How hopeful should you be? We're going to talk to that CEO ahead. Welcome back to State of the Union. I am Jake Tapper. Uh, Illinois is one of the dozens of states now beginning to gradually ease some restrictions due to the pandemic as that state's governor tries to balance concerns about an economic recession with that daily death toll that does not appear to be slowing. Joining me now, Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker. Uh, Governor Pritzker, thanks so much for joining us this week. um, The state of Illinois topped 3,000 coronavirus deaths. Um, take a look at this graph. It shows the number of new confirmed coronavirus cases in Illinois over time. Uh, now, the White House guidelines say there should be a 14-day trend uh, of downward movement in new cases before states begin uh, the process uh, of reopening. Illinois has not had 14 days of downward movement. So why are you confident that Illinois is, is ready to take st- steps to reopen? Well, let me begin by uh, just pointing out that the reason that the COVID positive numbers uh, are going up is because we've been testing a great deal more than ever before. In fact, uh, we're the second most testing uh, in the nation among the top 10 most populous states. So that's why you're seeing just the raw numbers going up, because our raw numbers of tests have really exploded. Uh, We just finally passed 20,000 a day the other day. Uh, We want to keep going. We've got to make sure that we test as many people as possible. Uh, But the truth is that what we watch are the positivity rates, you know, the rate at which people are testing positive. So is that rate stable or going down? And it is in Illinois. Uh, We also watch the hospitalization rate, how many new people are entering the hospital, which is roughly flat around the state. And then we watch the number of hospital beds that are available in the event that there's a surge. We have to maintain a certain number of available beds. And of course, we've already turned on elective surgeries in Illinois. So you can always, if there's a massive surge, you can turn off those elective surgeries. Having said all of that, We are being very careful. Uh, We have a 28-day period that we're in now during the month of May in which we're watching all these numbers, monitoring them. On May 1st, I changed our stay-at-home order to make sure that, um, you know, we reopened our state parks and and kept people socially distant, put a lot of rules in. We we opened golf courses, but but only for, you know, very small groups going through it, no carts, and everybody has to have their own clubs, everybody has to wear masks. We put in a mask order that everybody across the state has to wear a face covering when they're in public. So we've done a lot to make sure that we're keeping these numbers moving in the right direction. And we will not reopen unless we meet all of the standards that I've set for doing so. So you were talking about uh, testing 20,000 a a day. But of course, uh, as you know, 
you need to get that number higher uh, in order for people in Illinois to have confidence uh, that, that there is a real program of surveillance testing, of contact tracing. What do you need, since the White House is obviously not going to lead a national effort to do surveillance testing and contact tracing the way that they do at the White House itself, what do you need uh, in order to get to what Harvard says you need to get to, at about 64,000 tests a day? Um, are you ever going to get to 64,000 tests a day? And, and do you need President Trump to do something? Or can, do you have enough power yourself to get there? Well, look, you know that I have not been counting on the White House because there have been too many situations in which they've made promises not delivered. Uh, very recently, they've promised a lot of swabs. Uh, they're supposed to arrive today, the first shipment of those. I'm looking forward to that. Uh, but, but what we're doing is we're going it alone, as the White House has left all the states to do. And we've done well spinning up testing. We will continue to grow our testing. We have the ability to do that on our own. And we are we've had contact tracing across the state. We have county health departments that do that. We have our uh, our state health department, which does that. But what we're now going to put in place and we're in process is a uh, we're imitating uh, one of the great collaborative uh, efforts that's happening in the United States. And that's what's happened in Massachusetts. It's the Massachusetts Contact Tracing Collaborative. We can do that in Illinois. We are, in fact, we've hired somebody who was at the CDC, uh, you know, who was a, a, an expert at, uh, at their uh, outbreak intelligence service. Uh, and we think that we can have a massive contact tracing effort up uh, in the next few weeks. So contact tracing testing, you're right. In order to reopen businesses, in order for people to feel confident, we have to make sure that we're constantly mm -hmm. growing those efforts. So there's some confusion about what your goal is uh, in terms of reopening. The Chicago Tribune editorial board uh, published an editorial about your reopening plan. They write, quote, uh, he's being more than just cautious. He has moved the goalposts. Governor Pritzker's stated goal was to get the outbreak un under control, not eradicate COVID-19 completely. We don't want his pursuit of the perfect outcome to unnecessarily delay the restarting of activities. Um, what's your reaction to that? And what is your end goal uh, for Illinois to go back to some semblance of normal? Well, I think the editorial board of the Chicago Tribune didn't read the plan uh, because we are currently in phase two of my plan, still under a stay at home order. Phase three, which would come if we meet these standards that I've set out, uh, is the next phase, but doesn't reopen everything. Restaurants and bars, unfortunately, would remain closed until we can see how we do in the next phase. Phase four is just the phase before we would have a vaccine, assuming maybe we never get a vaccine, we're going to have to uh, deal with, you know, hopefully a treatment that will come along that will be very effective. But even without that, everyone's going to have to wear a mask. We're still going to have to socially distance. Uh, the truth is that coronavirus is still out there. It hasn't gone anywhere. And so we all are going to have to change the way we do things until we're able to eradicate it. If the Chicago Tribune thinks that everything's going to go back to completely normal without us having a very effective treatment or a vaccine, they're just dead wrong. There have been reported cases of children in Illinois being hospitalized um, because of a new inflammatory syndrome uh, that doctors think is, is possibly linked to coronavirus. In New York, three children have already died uh, from this unknown 
disease. Uh, are you tracking these cases in Illinois? Uh, what do you make uh, of what you, you're hearing and seeing about these cases? We've seen examples of this. It hasn't been uh, yet categorized in Illinois, but we just put together a group within our Department of Public Health to track these cases and, of course, to, to bring in folks who can help us uh, answer the question, how do we protect children from this? What is causing this particular strain? Is it really coronavirus? So these are a lot of questions that are out there. I mean, I think we all thought that children perhaps were less susceptible to coronavirus, but now perhaps this is a mutation of it that we haven't seen before. But whatever it is, it's my goal and you know our group's goal to make sure that we protect the children of Illinois. All right, Governor J.B. Pritzker, thank you so much for your time today and good luck with the, the people of Illinois and, and keeping them safe. We appreciate your time. Thank you, Jake. A horrifying video raising questions about justice and race. The mayor of Atlanta, Keisha Lance Bottoms, joins me next. Stay with us. Welcome back to State of the Union. I'm Jake Tapper in Georgia. The next couple of weeks will be a test revealing whether Governor Kemp's decision to quickly reopen non-essential businesses, including restaurants and movie theaters, will or will not cause a spike in COVID-19 cases as health experts fear. This as the state is also rolling, roiling rather, from the murder of Ahmad Arbery, a 25-year-old uh, black man, 26 actually, Two arrests were made this week, 74 days after Arbery's death. Joining me now is the Democratic mayor of Atlanta, Keisha Lance uh, Bottoms. Mayor Bottoms, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Um, first of all, uh, it's been more than two weeks now since uh, the governor gave an order allowing non-essential businesses in Georgia to, to reopen. A, a new study from the University of Maryland using cell phone data finds that the number of people statewide staying home in Georgia dropped by at least 30 percent. You have insisted that people in your city, Atlanta, stay home. Are they listening to you? Well, you know, we're getting mixed information. It's difficult to tell when you see the crowds on television. It looks as if everyone is out, but we know that's not the reality. Um, many young people are out and about as if everything is normal. Um, our malls have opened, restaurants are reopening, but... Um, anecdotally, I've spoken with just as many people who have said that they will remain at home. Many of our Fortune 500 companies are not reopening for business just yet. And I think, Jake, therein lies the issue that we have um, really across this nation. You have Fortune 500 companies and people who have the ability to telework um, are able to remain at home. But our frontline workers many who are most vulnerable in terms of having access to health insurance um, and to quality health care are the people who are having to go back out to work. And so we'll see over the next couple of weeks what this massive health experiment, uh, what the results are in our state. And, and that leads me to my next question, because we know this virus is hitting communities of color uh, particularly hard. In a recent study by the CDC, found that 83% of hospitalized coronavirus patients in Georgia were black, 83%. What would you like to see from the federal government or the state government uh, to help stop these racial disparities? 
Well, I, I think there's so many things that we can do and should be doing. One, I think that we need to make sure that people have access uh, to funding, people who own small businesses, that they have access to these loans and that they are able to make decisions not based on economics, but what's based best, what's best um, for their health and for their families and for their communities. But also, I, I think that we have to be responsible. We know that there will be a time that we have to reopen this country because we're not at the point that there's a cure or even a vaccine for COVID-19. But I think we have to be very thoughtful. I don't think that the way to reopen up Georgia and stimulate the economy is to send the people out who can least afford to get sick. I think there are ways that we could have done it, whether it be opening up uh, medical offices and dental offices and places that perhaps have access to PPE and doing a truly thoughtful phased approach to reopening, not just in our state, but across our country. But it's very difficult to have those decisions put forth when we are getting really what I call erratic leadership from the White House and, and no clear blueprint on how we move forward thoughtfully as a country. I want to ask you about Ahmad Arbery, a young African-American man who would have turned 26 this last week. He was allegedly shot and killed by two white men in the state of Georgia. Those two men are now facing murder charges. I want you to take a listen to what his father told CNN on Friday night. Everybody loved him. If you know him, you'd see he was a, a fair man of a good young man. And, you know, to see him just get lynched like that by a racial mob like that, it just... It's just devastating to our family. The shooting happened back on February 23rd. Authorities had possession of a now viral video of the shooting from the beginning. But the murder charges were not filed until this past week after the video emerged online and, and shocked and outraged millions of Americans. Do you think that the two men were only charged because the video became public? I think that's absolutely the reason that they were charged. I think had we not seen that video, I don't believe that they would be charged. And it is, uh, it's heartbreaking. It's, it's 2020. And this was a lynching of an African-American man. And I think that, um, you know, my heart goes out to his family. But I think, again, it's a part of this bigger issue that we are having in this country. Um, with the rhetoric that we hear coming out of the White House in so many ways, I think that many who are prone to being racist um, are given permission to do it in an, an overt way that we otherwise would not see in 2020. Um, because you have to remember, Jake, you know, in cities across this country, even if local leadership fails, there was always the backstop of our Justice Department to step in and make sure that people are appropriately prosecuted. But we don't have that leadership uh, at the top right now. It's disheartening. And I can tell you, I have four kids, three of whom are African-American boys. Um, they are afraid. They are angry and they are afraid. And I think that it speaks to the need to have leadership at the top that cares for all of our communities and, and not just in words, but in deeds as well. Your name has come up, speaking of leadership at the top, your name has come up in the conversation uh, about who um, presumptive Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden might pick as his vice president. Congressman 
Jim Clyburn, who yeah. arguably propelled Biden to the nomination in South Carolina, has called you a, quote, tremendous VP candidate. Do you agree? Well, any time that uh, Jim Clyburn speaks your name and he speaks it in a positive light, then that's certainly an honor. I, mean, I, I think I'm a pretty great person. I don't know if my, my husband will agree with that, but um, I certainly think that Joe Biden has the right to pick whomever he thinks will help propel him to victory in November. So it's an honor to have my name spoken in that light. But being mayor of Atlanta right now is is a more than a full time job, continuing to lead our city, uh, but also in the midst of COVID-19. I have to ask you about Tara Reid, uh, the former Biden staff member who has accused the former vice president uh, of assaulting her in a Capitol Hill corridor in 1993. Uh, vice President Biden denies these allegations. He says they're 100 percent false. Do you find Tara Reid's allegation credible? You know, what the vice president has said has been um, completely accurate. He said that Tara Reid has, should be heard and should be taken seriously. But I think that we have to go to the next level and then vet what her allegations have been. And there's not been anyone um, with, with any objectivity who's been able uh, to confirm that her allegations are accurate. The Joe Biden that I know is a man who respects women. Um, and again, not just in his words, but in his deeds. He authored the Violence Against Women's Act. He's been a very vocal proponent of making sure that women are protected um, across our college campuses. And that's not the Joe Biden that I know. When you talk about nobody with any objectivity, I mean, there are people in her world, her friends and apparently her mother, uh, who who vouched for uh, what she is saying. I mean, I, I don't know what you mean when you say anybody with any objectivity. I mean, that, that seems a standard that very few uh, accusers would be able to, to, make, to meet. Well, what I mean by that is, aside from people who know her personally, I'm referring to the media who's had an opportunity to vet her allegations. Um, also, there's not been anyone who worked in the office at that time um, who could corroborate uh, the allegations that she claimed she made at that time. And also um, being mindful of the fact that her story has changed over time. Okay. Mayor Bottoms, um, most importantly for me to you today, happy Mother's Day. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Jake. Coming up next, the promising new treatment that could be our best hope to make it safe to leave our homes in the coming months. Stay with us. Welcome back to State of the Union. I'm Jake Tapper. Medical experts say the only thing that could get the U.S. back to business as usual is a vaccine. But that, of course, could take years to discover and create. But there is some promising news about a potential antibody treatment. And joining me now to talk about that is the CEO of Regenerin Pharmaceuticals, Dr. Leonard Schleifer. Uh, Dr. Schleifer, thanks so much for joining us. You said you hope that your new antibody cocktail could enter clinical trials as soon as next month. How optimistic should the American people be that this drug will actually work and allow us to return to something resembling normal here in the U.S.? 
Yeah, well, thanks for having us, Jake, and uh, happy Mother's Day to all of the mothers out there who are watching. Um, I just would say that our approach takes advantage of what's been known about the immune system for more than 100 years. That what the body naturally does when it sees a foreign virus is it starts to generate these proteins called antibodies. And over a period of weeks, these antibodies rise and they help the body neutralize uh, this virus. Um, and our approach is to generate these human antibodies artificially, so to speak, and give people those antibodies to pr either prevent them from getting uh, infected if they're at high risk or treat them. Now you ask how optimistic should we be? Look, antibody uh, transfer is a proven mechanism. What does a mother do to uh, her child, her unborn child? She transfers the antibodies to the baby ac across the placenta. And after the baby is born, she gives the baby antibodies, because the baby's immune system isn't really up to snuff yet, through mother's milk. And we know this approach works. And in fact, we've done it um, with uh, Ebola. We took our technology, we took a really deadly disease like Ebola, and we showed that if you generate these antibodies, these human antibodies in what's known, become known as our magical mice at Regeneron, you can give these mm -hmm. antibodies to people who would otherwise die from Ebola and save their lives. So we should be optimistic about this approach, but we have to get real data. In this environment, there's nothing that can substitute for real science and real data. As you know, creating and approving uh, drugs like these is a, is a very complex process. Is it possible we might never have an effective treatment or vaccine for the coronavirus? Look, um, I think we have a very robust uh, biopharmaceutical uh, ecosystem. And there is so much effort now by so many creative and entrepreneurial people. I think we will get something. The question is when. Uh, vaccines can be tricky. There are no vaccines for some viruses. Do I think we will get something here? Yes. Will it happen overnight? Probably not. Um, will our approach and others, I should say, we're not alone. There are others, thank goodness, who are also trying to use this antibody approach. I think that has a very good chance of succeeding. We've seen some success with remdesivir. Um, it's not a panacea for the pandemic. Um, but I think it is a step in the right direction. And I hope that there'll be even better ones that can be either replace that or added on top of it. So am I optimistic? I am. Do, whether it's a vaccine or the antibody treatment, does the United States have the healthcare infrastructure once there is something that we all should get, assuming that your optimism is proven correct, to get it out to everybody? Does that exist? Right. So there are two aspects of that infrastructure that uh, have to be in place. Uh, one is the distribution networks. And I think that's possible. You might go to your local CVS to get this, for example, or you could go to your, even to your doctor the way you get a vaccine. Our distribution capabilities work. OK, so I'm not worried about that. Our manufacturing capacity, on, other, on the other hand, to make these complicated uh, either biologics, if you will, these antibodies, or to make vaccines, I think our capacity is limited. And if there's something we have to learn from this pandemic, so that when COVID-21 or 25 or 32 comes along, we need a little bit more capacity already in place so that we can get to everybody. I want you to take a listen to something President Trump said at the White House on Friday. 
This is going to go away without a vaccine. Eventually, it's going to go away. The question is, will we need a vaccine? Uh, at some point, it will probably go away by itself. Is that true? Is this going to go away without a vaccine by itself? Well, for sure, it's probably, that's probably true. The question is, at what cost? Uh, the pandemic, uh, the flu of 1918, it went away. But there were tens of millions of people whose lives were lost or affected by uh, that uh, pandemic. Um, we would not like it to go away naturally. We don't want to wait so that so many people get sick, hospitals are overrun, people are dying because we have lack of treatment capabilities, um, or mm-hmm. people dying drug might just be available and isn't there. So naturally, these things will go through our population. But in modern medicine, we'd like to control how that happens. All right, Dr. Schleifer, thank you so much. And happy Mother's Day to anyone in that house there that uh, deserves to be uh, happy Mother's Day. Thanks so much. Hey, appreciate it. Before we leave you on this very unusual Mother's Day, we want to take a moment to give our thanks and express our appreciation to all the mothers who are making the best of a difficult situation these days. For the moms juggling work and homeschooling and the care we all rely on. For the single moms who are truly incredible heroes. And for all the moms who, because of this health crisis, cannot be with their children today. We want to specifically thank Shana Jones, a mom in St. Louis, Missouri, who lost eight friends and family members to coronavirus and still somehow finds the strength to help others by setting up a table filled with free food, cleaning supplies, even toilet paper outside her house every morning. We send our appreciation to a mother-daughter pair of nurses from Arkansas who traveled to New York to help treat coronavirus patients. Uchenna Unya Murphy and her daughter, Anna, worry about their own health, of course, but in addition to taking care of patients, they also look out for each other. Gratitude to Kaylin Dusterbeck, a nurse in Janesville, Wisconsin, working long shifts to fight COVID-19, sometimes going days without seeing her own five children at home and worrying about the risk she might pose to her own small daughter who was born with one lung. We want to wish a happy Mother's Day to Angela Primocheco, who was in a coma fighting coronavirus when she delivered her daughter Ava. She woke up when her baby girl was five days old, but she had to wait to hold her until she tested negative for the virus. Hoping you're getting lots of hugs this morning. And lastly, because we know this day can be a difficult one, we want to send our deepest condolences to the six children of Sunday Reuter, who died of coronavirus in March at age 42. The children gathered outside her hospital room and said goodbye to their mom via walkie-talkie. We are so sorry for your unimaginable loss. To all the moms out there, thank you from the bottom of our hearts for everything you do. And of course, to my wife and the mother of my children, as well as to my mom, my stepmom and my mother-in-law, I love you all. Hope all of the moms out there can get just a little pampering today. Thanks for spending your Sunday morning with us. Fareed Zakaria speaks to former Prime Minister Tony Blair and economist Larry Summers for a peek what the future looks like in the post-COVID-19 future. A a Fareed Zakaria GPS special. That's next. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. 
And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.